Hi everyone, I'm Lois Snyder, founder of Periwinkler's Architectural Millwork and Cabinetry and board member for Cabinet Makers Association. I'd like to welcome you to episode 14 of Pro Cabinet Maker, a monthly podcast produced by the CMA. Each month we'll chat with some outstanding industry professionals about the issues and challenges impacting their businesses, as well as success stories to inspire. Mark Sanderson entered the millwork industry 20 years ago with a small cabinet shop, and now it's one of the most profitable millwork companies in the United States. Using the theory of constraints along with integrated sets of activities, Mark has transformed Wilkie Sanderson into a national company that does work from coast to coast. I'm looking forward to the discussions. Welcome to the podcast, Mark. So, Mark, I heard a recording from the Executive Briefing Conference, and you talked about the new workforce. And can you tell us a little bit about who is or what is the new workforce, in your opinion? Yeah. And so I, I really appreciate, Lois, that, that you heard that. And it was a fun event at EBC. Let me start from the standpoint of why that new workforce or what's passionate for me relative to HR. I honestly believe in the woodworking market, HR is truly strategic. If we're not looking at employee recruitment and retention for this new workforce, and we can define the new workforce in many ways, if you wish. And some of us that are, have a little bit of gray hair, as uh, I know this is a podcast, you can't see my gray hair at the moment, but what you can sense is there's a generational difference. And as we think about that new workforce, if we are not looking at that correctly, through their lens, if we are not looking at HR, both recruitment and retention from a strategic standpoint, I'm not sure that we're going to be successful because keeping employees and maintaining employees and developing employees, that's our number one asset. We could buy all the wood, the hardware, the equipment, all of those things we can buy forever. It's my company and yours. We both could purchase the exact same thing, but the competitive dynamic that differentiates our firms is about the competition. And it is that HR piece, the employee piece that walks out our door. If we're not thinking about that, we're not thinking strategically about HR recruitment, retention, and this new workforce. Do you see a change, I think, since COVID? Because I see a big change in the workforce since COVID, mostly in relationship to pay scales. I'm finding that it's easing up as far as the people that are available. It's much better than it was two years ago or three years ago, but I'm finding that things have changed. They have. And, and one of the, the pieces of data, and, and it's it's interesting, I know, Lois, you are a AWI subscriber and you look at that cost of doing business survey. And one of the things that as, as we look at that data and we think about, okay, what's going on in the market? 93% of people that are participated in that survey, 93%, they say we anticipate hiring more or increasing our headcount. And that's not just one or two people. That's significant. 10 to 20% plus are predicting that's going on. And so I'm going back to my college days of thinking about Econ 101 and that supply-demand curve. And in that supply-demand curve, whenever there is demand and there is a limited supply, which is that's exactly what we went through in this COVID piece, we're going to get pressure on that compensation side. 
And as we think about the woodworking industry and what our tech colleges aren't doing and what our high school shops aren't doing, they're not creating the next generation of woodworkers. The families are not encouraging hands-on skill sets for that next generation of woodworkers. We are having a dearth of input. And so as we think about this and we think about that price pressure that we're seeing, 93% of our competitors wanting to grow, where do they get that from? They get it from you and I. And so we see that competitive dynamic manifesting itself in what we do and its impact on our business. And limited supply, limited new workforce coming in because of a whole host of reasons, which I'm sure that we might talk about, and that movement and that expansion desire of business owners, that growth, that starts to create that upward pressure on the compensation portion. Absolutely, Lois. Yeah, I think a lot of the things that I feel like we haven't done ourselves any favors is not keeping up with pay raises like it, like I've seen, right? It's not fair that somebody who's been in this industry for 20 years or more is making the same that someone who's pouring a coffee at Starbucks is getting. And if it makes more sense to become a plumber or an electrician, I get it. And I feel like we're getting the people who the people that I hire, they love wood. They love working with wood, right? You talked about the tactile nature that we are experiential, right? I think that's the way we appeal. It is. And I think that you've touched on something that makes it, we all need to think about how to recruit and retain employees. And if we're playing the price game, that is a lever that we can pull. But I would argue, Lois, that's not the only lever. That If that's the only competitive aspect that we have between our business. I will pay you more, or I feel like I need to pay you more. We're losing a lot of options. How we think about that employee value proposition is absolutely critical to being competitive on the market and not having necessarily the price or the wage or the salary be the only thing that our employees are looking at. But to your original point, I'm with you. As we think about those that have been with us for years and years, and where they're at on the pay scale versus those that we're trying to attract into the organization, those lines are starting to move closer and closer together. And it is hard as a business owner to say, okay, I need to move my scale. It is really hard to think about that. But one thing, at least in some of the data that I've looked at within the construction industry, about a year ago, this is the latest data that I've looked at, we are not passing on the price increases both in wage and in materials to our general contractors and to our clients. We have been absorbing those for the most part. And so that's got to be part of the dynamic in the equation. Are we lazy? Are we not paying enough attention? I've noticed from the people that I've hired recently, they've never met anyone quite like me who's very involved, who follows it along, who shows up. You know, and I think that's an important thing to raise that level of the jobs that we're getting. I agree with you 100%. And you use the word fear. And when I chat with business owners, several times I hear, well, if I raise my price, I might not get the work. And if I don't get the work, that means I can't keep the business moving in the right direction. Here's what I would argue. Some of those same business owners are saying, I'm swamped. The easiest way to not be swamped is raise your price. Exactly. And one, and you will find that right balance between the work that you're getting, the profit that you're making, and the wage that you can provide your organization. 
But there is a tremendous amount of fear relative to raising prices to the client because we've all been through, and with this gray hair, we've all been through the Great Recession of 2008 through the 13. And yeah. you know what that's done to our business and how painful as an owner that caused and the anxiety. You're nodding your head right now, Lois. You know what I'm talking about. I do. I do. Although I kept right on working. And I think for me in my business, it's always been exceeding expectations and staying out of a pool of things that anyone can do. We have the AWI, we have the QCP certification. That helps us a lot, I think. It brings a huge value to what we do. Lois, I think you're spot on in terms of differentiation. And so we as entrepreneurs, we think about how to differentiate ourselves to our clients, whether it's fine residential, it's residential in general, a general contractor, the end user, it doesn't matter. But we approach the market having a thought of we need to be unique because if we're average, we're doing what everybody else is doing, we're going to get what the industry gives us. And that's average profitability, which is not that great. But your point, I think, can be applied to HR and recruitment, retention, and how we think about the employee base, that new workforce. We need to be equally unique to attract talent and retain them. If we're not, we're average. And if we're average, the number one lever that everybody pulls when they're average is I'm going to lower my price on the market to get the work, or I'm going to have to play the wage game in order to get employees. And I think there are other ways that we can approach this because of differentiation. So my heart is touched, and I love the point that you made, Lois. Absolutely spot on. What can we offer as far as how do we differentiate or what makes us sexy, as you would say? If I can start by thinking about hard problems, and I'm going to give you my kind of like general rubric, my general rubric of how I think about solving problems. And I'll just say this in general. I am not a firm believer that there's any silver bullet in the world. Okay. If there was a single thing to solve any major problem, you know what? We'd all just do it. I can just do one thing. If I just come in an hour earlier, that solves the problem. And there are no silver bullets in life. If there were, there'd be a lot more people like us being entrepreneurs and doing this business aspect. It is hard. And so with that, I want to use an analogy to help set up the answer to your question, Lois, if that's okay, I think about problems like a balloon. And the balloon represents the problem. And if I want to pop that balloon, using one finger to pop that balloon, all I'm going to do is move it around. I'm going to push the balloon from one spot to another. I don't do anything but create a lot of energy, and I move the problem from one department to the next. I don't do anything. If I use two fingers, I might contain that problem. And each finger, I would argue, is representing a way to think this through or an attack on that problem. Two fingers, I'm going to contain the balloon. It's not going to move around, but I'm pretty sure I'm not going to pop it. It takes multiple fingers pointing at that balloon in order to pop it. And with that analogy, there are eight things that I think that we can start to differentiate ourselves on in terms of our value proposition, how we market ourselves to employees whether that's current employees or future employees. And the eight things are the following. One, we need to think about the organization. Organization can be a competitive dynamic. Is it a teamwork environment? Is it a dictatorship? What does it look like? Do we allow remote employees? Are we using technology? What is that employee experience as they're working with us? 
And you mentioned earlier, Lois, that you like walking around and being engaged with your staff. How we organize can be a competitive advantage to retaining our employees. So that's number one on the list. Culture, number two, what are our values? What's our mission? Culture starts at the top. And we've all probably worked in organizations where it's like caustic. I don't ever want to be there again. I don't want to be part of that organization. And so we leave. And so thinking as an owner operator, as an entrepreneur, culture starts with you. And if you're not managing it, it exists anyway. And so the second piece of that value prop of things that we can do that are non-wage related and us writing checks is we have to manage the culture and make sure it's attractive for the employees that we're trying to go after. Third thing, I would talk about the people. I use a church analogy all the time about people. And that is people will stick with a church that is unhealthy because of the people and the friendships and the relationship and the nexus, the network they have. The exact same thing happens within our work environment. The number one reason that people leave, my friends have left. The number one reason that people stay, it's my friends. And so if we're not creating that camaraderie, if we're not thinking about what the relationships look like with senior leadership, if we're not building our reputation and investing in that nexus, that network, how our employees connect to each other, we're doing a disservice with our value proposition. That's number three. Number four, does your organization provide education, learning, and development? You can think about numerous companies that maybe you've worked for or that you've seen that will not invest in the employee. Well, tell you what, if you're not investing in your employee with education, whether it's formal or informal, on-the-job training and in that experience, you're going to attract employees that don't want that. If your value proposition, nope, we don't do any education. Nope, we're not going to invest because they're going to lead me anyway. You're going to get people that don't value education. If you want people that are lifelong learners, you need to be providing those resources. And there's great ways that those can be free out on the market. That's number four of the eight points of this value proposition that I'm talking about. Number five, we've touched a little bit on it. It's compensation. Compensation, it's part of the value prop. Other than owners and operators, honestly, our employees are working for their life. They're working for a wage. We're working for passion as entrepreneurs. And so salary and bonus and evaluation and rewards and recognition in that compensation piece absolutely important to the equation. But I would argue it's number five. It might be number one if that's the only thing that you're competing on, but it is part of this eight-piece rubric. Number six, benefits. How do your benefits compare? It's not just the wage and the salary, but what about holidays, insurance? Is there a retirement plan? In my organization, Wokey Sanderson in Minnesota, one of the things that we do relative to the benefit piece is we're an ESOP. We're an employee-owned organization, and the employees own 45% of the company. And we out that benefit. And one of the things that it, that does is it brings people to us that are thinking about retirement. The 15, 16, 18-year-olds, 20-year-olds, retirement is a far off. But those experienced woodworkers, and they're thinking about benefits like, okay, I want to be at a company that's thinking about my retirement. And so that's a benefit piece that we tout. That's number six, career. 
Is there a promotion path? And this is number seven. Is there a way that somebody can see that they're going to have a career for the next 10, 15, 20 years in your organization? Or do they top out? That looks like promotions and career pathing and opportunities, and even to the extent challenges. It doesn't have to be vital necessarily, but are you exposing and providing opportunities for people to grow? And if you are, I would argue, competitive advantage, something that you can put in your employee value proposition and think this through. And the last one in this eight-point value prop model that you can think of is the work environment. How do we recognize? Is it positive reinforcement? How do we help them find the right work-life balance? And oh, by the way, Lois, you talked about COVID here recently, and that has highlighted that work-life balance immensely. Those that are of the GI generation or that are with us for a long time, that work-life balance, it's not as important. But as we start to think about the younger generation, that work-life balance is part of the pitch that we need to bring to the table if we're wanting to bring someone 20 years of age, those 20-somethings, into our workforce. And so those eight things, let me just summarize them again. The organization, the culture, the people, learning and development, that education component, that's number four. Number five is the compensation. Six is the benefit package. Seven ends up being our career pitch. And eight is the work environment. And as we think about our companies, those eight pieces are the way we should evaluate our employee value proposition and think through, are we only pulling one of those levers or do we successfully pull all eight? So that got me thinking because I don't think that people expect to go to a job and stay there their whole lives anymore. I think that has changed. And I almost feel like it's changed in the way that I view everyone. I'd love people to stay, but if they came in and they worked for a year or a project and it works out, I'm happy with that. Or I will be okay with that. And particularly, I think the younger people, although I see it with everyone, I'm, it's shocking sometimes. It's it, 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 I think, honestly, Lois, that goes back to the supply-demand curve. As people started to retire early, or find that work-life balance, and you could see what was happening with the number of people in the workforce compared to demand. That supply-demand has caused churn, people moving from business to business. And I'm with you. However, I'll say this, I don't think we have to accept that churn, candidly. And that gets to, are we creating the right environment? Are we creating the right culture? Are we giving people a safe place to work with an exciting future. And that gets to the, the products that we end up building, the work that we end up doing, because effectiveness. Let's think about it like a project manager. I know in my organization, it takes about a year to a year and a half before I start to get actual return on my project manager that I'm investing in. And by the time they hit their stride in year four or five, that's the moment that they have the whole workflow down. And we spend a ton of effort and energy on education. And that's even with the education and the investment. And so with that, I'm like, I need to be thinking about that 10-year stint. So how do I do this? I got to look at all eight of those aspects and give them a reason to stay, a reason to retain. And at the end of the day, let's just be honest, uh, the choice of whether an employee stays or leaves is just that. It is 
absolutely their choice. What we can do is we can influence it, but we can't determine it. And that influence, I would again argue, are these eight things that we can control. The organization, the culture, the people that are around, the learning and development, the comp, the benefits as their career passing and that work environment. Yeah, it, as a small business, I often feel like I can't compete with you big guys. It's a lot harder to have all those things in line. I feel like it's nearly, it's impossible really and from where I come from. So I certainly want, I say to my guys, look, we're all fingers on a hand. This is the way our team operates. We're just, we're fingers, we're all basically equal and we're doing our job as a team. And I, I can have that attitude, but I feel it's... Or to compete with, say, a legacy business, someone who's second generation, third generation, or... I'll give you a little insight, and, and I appreciate that you put Wilkie Sanderson in the big boy realm. And I'll just say this, we have 85 employees and we do about $20 million. And so I'm going to give you an insight or a secret from my seat, and, and it's the following. We lose employees because as we grow, as we get bigger in our organization, they want that entrepreneurial craftsman environment. And so Lo Lois, I'll tell you this, when you think about the organization, that work environment, those are two of the aspects relative to who you can attract. I actually think that's a competitive advantage for companies like yours or smaller firms. You get that small camaraderie. I've had people leave on exit interviews and say, we're getting too big. I don't know everybody. And I just want to be part of that craftsman, that niche where I'm seeing the whole project almost from birth to death, that worker is absolutely who you need to go after. That skill set, that craftsman, that's your competitive advantage compared to mine. And so here's an example of what I use in kind of my speech and the way that I think about this employee value prop. And I just did an example with your firm and maybe mine, but let me put it on something that, that might be a little bit different. Is there a best soap? Is there a best airline? And I would argue, no. There's an airline that meets a certain set of needs. There's Spirit Airlines or JetBlue or the, that economy airline that, you know, where price is absolutely important. And then you have a British Airways or a Delta where it's about the business traveler. I'm going to make the following argument. Not every employee wants to work in a large organization. Not every woodworker wants to be in a small organization. Not every GC wants to give a project to your company, Lois. And so even in the beginning, you talked about what, what type of project fits you. Your fit and mine are different. And it's that uniqueness that's really important that you need to understand, I would argue, and then absolutely leverage your advantages. And so there's a soap or a shampoo, if you will, for long-haired old men like me. There's a shampoo for young men. There isn't a best shampoo. And so you got to figure that out and then sell. That's the key. We sell to our clients. We got to sell to our prospect or our future employees and leverage your advantages. So I love that question, Lois. And so you have assets that I don't. I have uh, a few new hires lately and they are craftspeople and they come in and they say, wow, they love the technology that we brought to the table. Yes. Because we have that. We have some really cool stuff that bigger companies don't have, right? Or even someone who's considered, well, we're the B team. I call myself the B team. And I'm happy being the B team. And it's fine. It's the dance that I want to do. 
So that line between bringing in that technology and those sexy machines and that kind of thing, and then also just, yes, and we still have the hands-on craftsmanship. So I think there is a balance. My, like I said earlier, my background, I have a Bachelor of Fine Arts in Furniture Making. What do I know about HR? Sometimes I wonder, it's, man, and I got to be nice, too. Like, how do you balance all of that? It's a huge task, I think. But what you just did for the last minute or two was absolutely define your value proposition. And those are the employees, when you think about that, the employees that have stayed with you for a long time, Lois, those are the ones, I love our family environment. I love the fact that, Lois, you're walking around and you're working with us. I love the type of work that we work on. I like this craftsmanship aspect with the technology. That pitch is your pitch to future employees. And I promise you, there are people out there that's exactly what they're looking for. And you just got to find them. And so that's the challenge of selling and marketing. But it's the same challenge that each and every one of us as an entrepreneur, business owner goes through. We have to get the work. We have to bring the work in. Just take the mindset and flip the coin over. Say, now we got to take that same approach, that same skill set, and apply it to retention, employees, future employees, prospects, and recruitment. It's so important to hear how you feel about, for example, I'll use the word poaching employees. I know it's not exactly what you're doing, but you're willing to put it out there. So if you could give us a little. Yeah. And I'll say this relative to poaching employees. And, and I think Wilkie has a really strong employee value proposition. Now, not everybody's interested in working for us, but we're not shy to promote and market who we are as an organization. And if somebody is unhappy somewhere, honestly, here's my argument. As a business owner of the firm that employee is at, if you have somebody that's not happy, they're not going to be performing well. It isn't a fit. What they want might not be your organization, but what we have could very well be. And so I'm not actively out there looking for employees at organization X, Y, or Z. I don't play that game, but I do just like Procter & Gamble markets their shampoo and Kellogg markets their cereal. I market who we are in terms of our employee value proposition. We have a strong culture from the top. We are very much looking at large jobs and that high-end monumental type work. We think about from a benefit package, retirement and the employee engagement. We think about the employees being part of the decision-making process because they are. They own 45% of the company. And I can keep going through that value prop. And that's what we try and sell. We market ourselves. And if people come to us, I'm willing to have the conversation. And so I'm not actively trying to poach, but I am actively marketing the organization to make sure that we find the right fit. And I would suggest take a play out of my playbook and do the exact same thing. Market who you are, find those employees that are unhappy, because to some extent, that's where you're going to find the experienced woodworker, because they're not being grown right now. That's a whole different topic of what we could talk about relative to high school and trade schools and, and how to, within your area, grow employees for your future. But market yourself. I don't apologize for that one. Mark, I heard you talk about geofencing and going after your employees. Can you give us a little insight into that? 
Yeah, great question, Lois. And here we go. We're going to go down this. And, and if there's one of my competitors listening, that's okay. You, you now know what I do. So let me divide my employees into kind of two classifications in terms of our recruitment efforts. Our office staff, for the most part, for the most part, we play in a pool that's coast to coast. We are very much remote employee based. In fact, my estimating team, I can't tell you, it's been over a year since I've seen them. And so that remote Zoom, yes, face-to-face, physically next to each other, it's been over a year. And we're out of COVID. So remote with the office workforce, that is a value that we have at Wilkie that gives us a much larger pool to play in. Now, production workers, fabrication, those type of skill sets, we have a little bit different problem. Those individuals cannot be remote workers. They need to be local. As they're local, there's only so far that someone's going to drive on a daily basis to work for you. And whether that's a half hour or 45 minutes, you need to take your current employee base and think about that. And then draw a circle around your factory and say, this is the pool that I get to play in. Take a compass, draw that circle. Here's where my production employees are going to come from because of the limiting factor that they have to show up every single day. They have to come to the shop to touch the wood, to touch the CNCs and do the work. And so given that, if I am looking for skilled craftsmen that are unhappy elsewhere, here's what we do. It's called geofencing. In that radius that we drew, in that circle, that 30, 40 mile radius that we have, there are competitors And so we've identified within our market, there's about 500 woodworkers on a factory floor within the drive range of our factory. We want about five more in this next year. One of the things that we do is we geofence every single one of those competitors so that if one of, let's say there's a shop or employee on their phone doing a Google search because they're on break, they're going to see a banner ad that reminds them and presents the Wilkie Sanderson brand name. Now, it's not going to give them all the information. It's not going to tell them who we are. It's not going to start to sell and close that deal of them working for us. But it is going to provide an awareness. And if we have that awareness, then that leads to curiosity. If the curiosity, because of dissatisfaction, leads to an inquiry, that geofencing starts the conversation, starts the process of recruitment, to create that awareness. Yes, do I do that? Absolutely. Am I trying to pull people away and calling them personally? No. I'm reaching out, letting them know about our brand, letting them know that we're here, letting them start that journey on their own of discovery. But I am not poaching directly by going after and putting flyers in a parking lot or looking at license plates and doing a reverse lookup to see who's at their shop and calling them personally. I don't play that game, but I am doing branding and marketing and awareness building with this concept called geofencing. And if you need to learn more about it, feel free, Google what geofencing is and find a local marketing agency, find a local marketing partner wherever you're at and learn more about that. They can help you with how you geofence and target a very finite group of individuals. Awesome, thank you. Mark, you've given us this eight-point model. How does this apply to millennials in the workforce? Yeah, that's a really good question. So millennials, 
think differently. And you and I have uh, a little bit of gray hair in this. Oh my gosh, that generation's really unique. But here's the thing. The generation before us complained about our generation too. It's our right. We've grown up. We're in that age that we can complain about the generation that's coming. But thinking about the millennials, we need to think specifically about what they're looking for. And so let's just do a couple quotes here that the millennials in general bring to the table when they interview with us. One, is this a place that I can be proud to work here? There's a lot of literature out there about Google and other organizations where that generation, they're talking about whether or not they're proud to work there. And so we know that. Now, how do we connect that to that eight-point rubric that we talked about that you're asking me about? That's about the people. So if we can address the people aspect of those eight points, if we can help the relationships and get them fostered quickly, and even to the extent make the work that we do rightful work. And, and this is a problem in my organization. All the parts and pieces come together. They get put on a pallet. They go off a truck, and that's it. That, that project's over. Move on. Wait a minute. With millennials, they need to see what that end result looks like. Do you spend time in your organization showing the photos of the end product? Are you showing or taking some of your staff to go visit the client when it's all done? Are you showing that pride? Millennials want pride. They want purpose. They want focus. And so these are just simple tactics that we can do to help them engage further in our organization. Again, millennials think about, does my job have special meaning? And so making that connection with the culture and the organization, two of the points on the eight-point rubric, that's another aspect that we can start to pull the levers for that millennial generation. And even thinking about, I enjoy my work. I see myself being here for a long time. I could see myself having a career. Pull the career lever. Are you giving millennials the next challenge? I was at the EBC, which you mentioned in the beginning of our podcast here, and I had somebody at the dinner table who was a millennial say, you know what, here's what I'm doing in my organization. And it, it far exceeded in terms of responsibility their gray hair, they had modern, and their age. They were being challenged and he was excited, absolutely excited at where he worked. And he was telling that story because he was being stretched. So when we think about this marketing problem, millennials have certain needs. They want a certain shampoo. They want a certain airline that serves certain needs. And marketing our organization to fill those needs with tactics within it is absolutely how we address and retain that millennial generation. That's a great question, by the way, Lois. It's interesting because as you're talking, of course, I'm thinking of what happens in my organization. And we went from doing a very high-end custom residential to doing kind of a high-end custom restaurant interiors, which a lot of people aren't willing to do. I love a challenge. I always have. That's how I've stayed busy, I think, is, oh, is it unique? Is it difficult? Did somebody say, I can't do it? We're going to do it. And so that, that I think is certainly key for the people that come to work. They want a challenge. They're not box makers. They are not button pushers. They're here for the challenge. And the other thing that, that I do when I, I cross train everyone, I want everyone to be able to jump around and to understand. And, and it really helps to understand what is the guy next to you doing? Like when I hand this off to my installer, how hard is it for him to do his job? And I, I try to keep everybody together that way. And also when I hire older people, the first thing I say is, 
You've got to be willing to teach the younger generation. If you are not willing to share your knowledge, you're not going to be a fit here. And so that's just a really important thing for us also. Lois, you just went through your organization value prop. I love that this is how we're ending the podcast and having the conversation because everything that we've talked about, you know exactly what you're looking for in an employee. That craftsman that's going to work for you is not going to want to be on my box line because it's the same thing over and over again. But I need somebody to do the box line. And that's okay. There, there are those people for sure. They would hate what we do, though, because, gosh, you're challenging me every single day. Right. And that gets back to there is no best soap. There's no best shampoo. There's no best airline. There is your company, Lois, that fits a certain need with your clients and fits a certain need with your employees and your future employees. And the same thing with Wilkie. We service a different market on the general contractor side. We hate restaurants, by the way. But we love high-end hospitality and stadiums and those type of things. And we're not the same thing for everybody. We don't service everybody. And we got to think about it the same way for our employee base. We don't meet everybody's needs, but we do meet a certain set. Celebrate that, be unique, and drive that hard in your recruitment process. It has been really awesome, Mark. And thank you. I was very excited when I told that I was going to get to interview you. It's been my pleasure. So Lois, thank you very much for letting me come on and, and pontificate here for a little bit with you. This has been an absolute joy. Awesome. Thank you. And thanks to everyone for listening to this episode of Pro Cabinet Maker. Join us each month as we discuss trends that impact the woodworking industry. And be sure to subscribe to our podcast on Apple, Spotify, Google, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. And if you'd like more information about the Cabinet Makers Association, be sure to visit us online at cabinetmakers.org. See you next time.